being an individual and creating art that is meaningful is my priority. That's my goal. And everything else sort of takes a back seat to that. This is Studio Confessions, the art and wellness podcast. I'm your host, Luis Martin, the art engineer. Let me take you with me. Listen in for conversations with artists and culture makers alike as we talk about their creative practice and what moves them. Let me share my wax poetic monologues and how to activate your creativity to live an inspired and more beautiful life. That's right, I said beautiful. Welcome to the studio. I'm glad you're here. Hey, Ben. Hey, how are you? you? I'm so good. I'm so excited to have you on. I stumbled upon one of uh, the ads for an event you're having, and I thought, oh my God, I need to connect with Ben. Um, First of all, Ben, can you tell us what do you do? Well, uh, I uh, am a contemporary artist, and I am uh, sort of new at it, so I'm developing my work right now. Uh, I come from a background of uh, television, and uh, so the work that I have done has been more um, entertainment than art. Uh, But as I transition into the contemporary art world, I'm starting to realize that Um, what I've done up to this point has really been more about social commentary and art than it has been about entertainment. And that's maybe one of the reasons why uh, uh, it's been difficult for me to get traction in the world of entertainment because I haven't been willing to compromise my values. Yes, I totally see that. Um, So for those in the not the know, uh, you did some performance art and you had an alter ego, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that persona? Yes. Uh, so I uh, created the character of Greenie Maxwell. And she is or was has been described as a pre-feminist, prototypical 1960s homemaker. And uh, so um, what's interesting is that uh, she has always been uh, very strongly herself in a way. Um, she lives in the past to some degree. Uh, she acknowledges the present, but lives in the past. Um, her environment and her wardrobe and her, all of her accessories and her, uh, you know, all of the, uh, kitchen utensils and everything that she's used or uses is all from the period between the 1950s and the 19, now the early 1980s. So um, uh, she has been an, an attempt on my part to recapture what I found fascinating about those eras. And I think it has to do with um, not only the design and uh, and the way things looked and, and felt, but also uh, I think that there's something very juicy about the defined uh, sex roles. And so that's been fascinating for me to explore. Amazing. I mean, listen, I love how humble you are. So I'm going to burst your little bubble right there. Um, I think you are a pioneer in what you've done. So 
What year did, did the show start? Uh, the show started locally here in New York on cable access in 1998. Wow. January 1st of 1998. And then it was on the Style Network and it started uh, in 2004. So for those who haven't seen the show, I, I mean, this is pre-RuPaul Drag Race. Uh, this is a drag queen hosting this kind of how-to style homemaking show. And I was fascinated because there was this existentialness about you. You know, there were, you had this gaze that was unlike anything I'd ever seen portrayed through the art of drag. And you, you kind of... People have described me as the uh, Mr. Rogers of drag. Yes, I was going to say that, yeah. <laughs> which is why I loved it so much. Also, like the reading rainbow of drag, you know, yeah. the Martha Stewart of drag. I mean, you come from a, from a pantheon of just amazingness. So I, I just really want to thank you for the work you've done, because it's, it really uh, was such a contribution to just making it so welcoming and uh, giving a face to drag that really wasn't accessible. Uh, and I'm just curious, when you developed this persona, who were the women you were modeling your character after? Was this your, your mother? Was this movie stars? Yeah, a big part of it is my mother. Um, she, uh, my father is, uh, or was a uh, professor and uh, a theatrical academic. So he would have uh, cast parties and parties for the, you know, other teachers in the school and stuff like that. A very social kind of world, academia can be very social. And um, so my mother would host these parties and she would make them as glamorous as she could. She, you know, made caftans in the seventies to wear as like hostess outfits and made things like beef Wellington and stuff like that. And, uh, and was always very gracious. And so I loved seeing that. I thought that was the way people should be and the way, and the way everyone was. I thought everyone did that. And uh, so that was a big part of uh, the character is uh, that in my mother, but also um, the uh, women, uh, you know, the, the traditional women that, that gay men find fascinating. Um, uh, I think that there's a lot of Auntie Mame in uh, Brini. There's, I love Auntie Mame. <laughs> uh, yes. There's a lot of Doris Day, uh, the sort of wholesome, natural, uh, easygoing, very relatable style of acting that Doris Day practiced. And it's similar to the acting that Dick Van Dyke practiced, and I'm fascinated with him as well. And so there's Doris Day, there's uh, Mary Tyler Moore, Mary Richards, all of that. Uh, all of those characters were influences in, uh, you know, Brini's uh, um, perspective on the world. Because you were so unique, uh, was it kind of difficult to kind of be part of the broader drag scene because you were so um, yeah, uh, academic almost, really? Yeah. <laughs> I was never really good at uh, traditional bar shows. The work that I do is small and subtle. And so the, the, it would get lost in a bar show where everyone's kind of, you know, drinking and you need to scream at the top of your lungs to get anyone's attention. That just wasn't me. So it never really, that never really worked for me. Television was such a great medium for me because it's intimate. It comes into your home. It's like a friend sitting with you in your home. And so I was able to do those small and intimate things 
that people would then experience and get. How is that experience translated into your artwork now? Well, the art is a, sort of a continuation of my exploration of these ideas of iconic uh, women and, and what they embody in the world in terms of the desire to, to please their men or the desire to become gracious as hostesses or the desire to achieve their goals in the workplace and, and sort of step out of the feminine role. So the photographs that I've created tend to have a, a perspective that relates to some aspect of that. Um, and the art really started to crystallize uh, when I started hosting this event at Club Coming because I felt like what was exciting for me about the event was that I would get to, to create a different look for each week. And, and <laughs> for the first year of the event, I only made garments that I made myself and I never repeated an outfit. So that was 52 unique individual outfits uh, that, that were all made by my own hands. And so I started documenting them in photographs. And initially they were just, oh, let's take a picture of me in this outfit. But then I started to think, you know, why don't I be a little bit more focused about this? And so I started to style the images to feel like either movie stills or advertising photographs. And so my Instagram became very uh, tightly crafted in a way where I would take the photo and then I would manipulate the photo in um, photo editing software. Well, your photography really lends itself to uh, almost cinematic projects, doesn't it? Do you yeah. have a, a continuing narrative of Brini or do you kind of tap into different storylines and, and different ideas? Well, what's going on with the photography is I'm starting to depart from, I mean, many of the photographs that I've taken could be Brini, but might not be Brini. It might be Brini playing a role in a film. It might be an entirely different person altogether. It's, it's becoming less crystallized around that character. In fact, I've even started to, um, uh, to integrate male characters in the work that I'm doing. Wow. Yeah. I, I did one photo where I'm, I'm sitting in a boat on uh, a pond fishing last October, you know, with the uh, fall foliage in the background up in the country. And so that's a complete departure from this. Um, so I'm not quite sure where it's all going. It's, it's all sort of, you know, the, the door is wide open. All of the characters up to this point have been blonde <laughs> with the exception of the male character, but, it's that's just because those that's the wig I have, you know, those are the wigs I have. I have all of these blonde wigs. So um, it's possible that the characters that I portray will become more and more diverse as we move on. Has it been an interesting transition for you to go from uh, drag queen to kind of performance artist to still model? <laughs> It has actually, um, it's been, 
it's been an exploration of what it means to be an artist. Um, I originally had sort of a narrow view of what an artist was from childhood. And my eyes were sort of opened up by my mentor that uh, I've been uh, working with. Um, uh, you, you may have heard of him, uh, Billy Boy. Tell me a little bit more. Billy Boy is a contemporary artist living in Switzerland and he is uh, fascinating. Um, he has had an incredible life of creating art that has been very much uh, outside the norms. Um, he created the, uh, the fashion doll Midvani as an art project. And I encourage you to explore the meaning behind that because it's really, really fascinating. And How exciting, thank you. Yeah, yeah, really interesting to look at what he's done. And he's done many things that have to do with fashion. He is the foremost collector of Scaparelli couture in the world. Um, uh, he had a line of, of art-inspired jewelry that uh, he produced for many years in the 80s that was used on runways by all of the Paris couturiers and, and stuff like that. So um, anyway, he's been giving me perspective on what it means to be a contemporary artist and, and helping me understand that the stuff that I've been doing all of my life has been very much uh, sort of founded in the, in the uh, intentions and actions of a contemporary artist. I remember sort of clues to that uh, being things like um, thinking early on, you know, in my 20s, as I started to create my first apartment to feel like a, a 60s movie set, that what I was doing was, was my life. I was crafting my life as art, just Absolutely. my life in general. And so that was sort of one of the first indications that maybe this was the direction that uh, I should be going in. That's such an important conversation for all artists, right? What, how do you measure your artistic ability, your artistic vision, and where does that, uh, and under what context, how do you want to frame it? Because like you said, I, I mean, from an outsider, you are living the artist's life, right? Here you are performing, here you are creating. So I can't think of you as anything else but an artist. So it's interesting to, to hear that dialogue uh, that we all have internally. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood that might have also given you clues that you were an artist, that you are an artist as a child? Well, I think one of the one of the defining aspects of my childhood uh, that has helped me in uh, in in my sort of fierce defense of my individualism is being an only child. Um, and, uh, you know, my parents were. Uh, both artistic. My father, as I said, was a theatrical academic. He taught acting and, and uh, uh, directing at a variety of different schools around the country. We would move quite a bit. Um, and my mother was an actress. And so she performed regularly. She uh, did a one woman version of Pride and Prejudice. And she toured with that when she was pregnant with me. So, wow. Yeah. So that was her, uh, you know, one of her big projects. And, and she also did, uh, um, she also did uh, shows in regional theater and 
and you know a few things in film and television and so I, I was always very much influenced by that sort of artistic perspective on life. And, and, and I think it's come down to the idea that being an individual and being, uh, and, and creating art that is meaningful is my priority. That's my goal. And everything else sort of takes a back seat to that. Um, on some level. That's amazing. And, and that's kind of difficult, isn't it? Because we, we live in such a sensational world where everything kind of has to be scandalous or what a drag queen with morals, <laughs> you know, or yeah, it, it's very, it's an ongoing conversation I have in my work where how Mexican or how Chicano do I want to be or how gay do I want my work to be? Um, and ultimately it's, it's, um, it's not really a question that needs to be answered. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the business aspect of having a show like the one you had and how did that kind of have you thinking on another cylinder as an artist, as a business person, uh, putting on a show? Well, uh, the show uh, was, you know, initially um, done locally here in New York and I had a lot of help from my mother, actually. She helped me. Uh, put that together and then it was picked up by the style network after we shot a pilot um what happened was a production company took an interest in me and that's how we got on the air that's kind of how all that came together in terms of the business aspect of my art that i'm sort of starting to figure out billy boy has uh extended invitations to be involved in a number of shows that he's doing in Europe. So I'm looking forward to those uh, as soon as things, you know, open up enough that uh, everyone can travel. And he's encouraged me to create a book of uh, my work that I did for Instagram, um, sort of taken to the next level where Absolutely. it's been, yeah, a little bit more, uh, finely calibrated and stuff. So I have that, uh, that book uh, that I have put together for him uh, and now is a, I have available for sale. So uh, that's sort of my first attempt to, to you know, uh, sell the art as I'm sort of still creating some of it, but I'm sort of chomping at the bit to get started with the, you know, the exhibitions and stuff that, uh, well, I'm sure it sells itself. This podcast is sponsored by me and CollageDream.com. Get your collage kits and start making space for your personal narratives through collage. Want to dive in deeper? Take a collage therapy session. Nope, I'm not a doctor, nor am I an engineer, but I am an artist. Let me help you get through your blocks, creative inquiries, and guide your curiosity. Go to CollageDream.com. The studio is open. As you're talking about Billy Boy and your mom, I can't help but think about uh, collaborations. And as an only child, how, how does that kind of, how did that work out? You know, how, as artists, we tend to work alone. Right. But when you want to work on a bigger realm or on a bigger stage, you have to collaborate, right? You have to play nice. Yeah. Uh, did your collaboration with your mom, was that organic or was that something that kind of was negotiated? How did you navigate that? It was, it was fairly organic. She was really eager to help me succeed. 
as you know mothers are and uh, so I uh, was very gratified to have her help me out in that way but you're right uh, collaborations can be complicated and fraught but they can also be uh, very rewarding as an only child it has been sort of difficult to let go of the reins and find ways to compromise and work with people in that way. But, you know, uh, anything that you do with video, for the most part, not all of it, but for the most part, if you want to, you know, take it past a certain level, has got to be collaborative. You've got to work with people. And so finding the best people to work with uh, and, and finding a way to um, draw out of them what you're interested in, if it's your project, is uh, the challenge. Absolutely. So all the characters you portray kind of live in this moment in time. Right. How has this revolutionary moment in, in gender and civil unrest impacted your practice? Well, I think it's fascinating. And I think that it's, it's a really interesting time right now. We're in, we're in a transitional moment similar to, to the gay rights movement of the 70s as we're starting to see the transgender people rise up and become visible in a way that they never have been before. And, and, and to have the, uh, and to have the strength to be themselves in public in a way that that has not happened in the past. Um, so what I think is interesting is the, is the exploration that I undertake in terms of gender roles. I think that that, that is an, an interesting uh, perspective I wonder whether it's going to become passe, you know, in in this era of uh, in this era of gender fluidity. But you know, I tend to think that there's still a an interesting perspective. It's an interesting perspective on gender to look back at the at the roles that gender has played in the past. And and when you think about it. Uh, the, the idea of a man in a skirt or a dress is becoming less and less controversial. And so the exploration of the foundation for that idea, the, not the man in a dress, but the idea of the dress and why do women wear dresses and men don't wear dresses? What is the reasoning behind that? And we can look back in the past and see the the past perspective on that. And it gives us a, an interesting sort of counterpoint for how we uh, are sort of expanding away from that. Wow. Yeah, that's really brilliant because I find that once we do that, then we realize that our whole foundation is just absolutely incorrect and erroneous, right? Right. right. And, and then we have know, to reinvent everything. And you know, the funny thing is that uh, as I think about this, I feel like I'm to some degree in danger of becoming, and it's it's an odd feeling, in danger of becoming, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's it's uh, but it's like I'm in danger of becoming ordinary, 
And, <laughs> and half of that is a feeling that, that you know, I, I sort of divorce myself from the fact that I'm a man in a dress and I think of Brini as a woman. And so th there's, there's no relevance in a woman in a dress. And it's sort of like, so there's that weird disconnect in my head. And the other half of it is that the people who are blending gender are now more on the forefront than the people who are like drag queens who are completely embodying one gender. So that's the two aspects of that. I think it's funny that you're so un, you can even think of the word, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you're so un that. Um, so now that it, right, it's, it's part of the vernacular. Uh, what, what, what's your take on it? I mean, personally, I have a really hard time connecting with people, uh, specifically gay men and not talking about RuPaul, <laughs> you know, or, or drag race. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about food. <laughs> let's talk, but somehow it always comes back to it. Um, what, what is your take on the phenomenon? Well, I think, I think RuPaul has done an amazing thing. I mean, he's, he has mainstreamed drag. I mean, there are housewives in Kentucky that are sitting in front of the television watching, you know, drag race and rooting for their favorites. I think that is an absolutely incredible thing. And I think it is, it has been a cultural phenomenon and it has gone so far in, uh, in normalizing that, that idea. And I think that's a really valuable thing. So I absolutely. think incredible. I think it's really funny when I hear uh, housewives use uh, drag lingo or, you know, or, or ball lingo completely out of context. And, you know, it's, it's slight cultural appropriation, but it's just hilarious. I mean, I, I just, I think it's really funny. But then I also think, um, you know, along with it comes like, oh, you, you're part, you're queer. So obviously you you're part of this ideology. It's just kind of funny to be kind of that monolithic of queer, right? Oh, you're queer, so you must have the same membership card or something, right, yeah. uh, which is always very troublesome. But yes, it's, it's, it's an amazing phenomenon. And I think it's done a lot for also uh, women to kind of embrace women through the lens of men celebrating women, yeah. right? Uh, so it's, it's amazing. Um, tell me, as you move forward in your art, what are the, some of the other things that you're taking inspiration from? Well, I always take inspiration from the uh, 20th century. Um, it's, uh, it started out with Brini between 1954 and 1974. That was my period. And that has sort of shifted forward as time has moved forward. Um, it became the 60s into the late 70s, then it became the late 60s and early 70s into the early 80s. And now it's extended up into the mid 1980s with dips back to the 1940s. So, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of fascinated with those periods of the 20th century. I think they really are interesting in how, how they, they changed the shape the visual shape of the female body, primarily female. I mean, so, to some degree male, but female body by, by changing hemlines, changing silhouettes, changing where the natural waist was, you know, where the waist was presented and all of that. 
changes the impression of the female body. It's like in the late 60s, the Ampere waist was in, which made women look like little girls. Whereas in the 1940s, women wore shoulder pads, which made them seem more masculine. So there's all of these different perspectives and they relate directly to the, to the culture of the times. World War II, women were taking the place of men in the workplace as men were overseas fighting the war. So it, it make, makes sense that they have these shoulder pads in that make them look like men. And the 1960s is the, is the period where, where where women are, are, are trying to break free of the patriarchy. And so the patriarchy says, let's make you look like little girls and put you back into our power. So it's these ideas that come about and present perspectives on the times historically and, and create the impressions that we feel today when we look at that particular image. So that's kind of what fascinates me about the past and has always inspired me and I imagine it always will. Um, I'm not seeing so much of that in the 21st century. There seems to be more individualism. Although all of what I've just talked about is, is visible only from an historical perspective. If we look back on it, we can see it. So I'm sure we'll have that 50 years from now, we'll look back on this time period and see the same things uh, or the same idea, you know, not the same ideas, but we'll see how this society was represented by its uh, clothing choices and things like that. Well, I love that you're playing with time, kind of like a time traveler yeah. <laughs> through your artwork. I, I used to say, and I like this description of it, is I, I'm dragging the playheads back and forth across the 20th century and, and finding interest in different places in it. So that's amazing. And sometimes when artists are kind of transitioning between projects or personas, they kind of antagonize their medium, right? So if you're a painter going to sculpture, you're like, oh, I don't look at paintings anymore. Do you have that relationship with Brini? Is it something you're trying to outgrow or are you walking hand in hand with her? Well, you know, I'm not sure. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. Time will tell, I guess, uh, where sort of the, the Brini idea fits into this. What I've been doing primarily stuff with my art is primarily visual. So the visual stuff is, is unrelated to the personality aspects of Brini on some level, because Brini's not presenting her naivete about, you know, contemporary, uh, you know, ideas and culture. She's not presenting, she's not, teaching you how to do something, which is very much what Brini's about. She's, <laughs> she's not interacting with you. She is, if it's her, is just an image on, you know, on a screen or in a book or, or, you know, on a wall somewhere. She's, so it's, it's a question as to whether that's Brini or not. It could be Brini. It could be someone entirely different. So I'm not sure what's going to come of Brini, whether she's going to be, I mean, She's still a part of my income stream. You know, I'm hosting this event at Club Coming now, this Make It with Brini event, where we're where we're discussing crafts and the various different disciplines and and making things and uh, and getting together and forming a com community around crafting and stuff like that. And so that's Brini. 
where she sits up on stage and she like talks to the audience and interviews people and stuff like that. And, uh, and uh, a friend of mine just asked me, uh, we haven't finalized anything yet. I don't know if it's gonna happen or not, but asked me if I wanted to uh, host an event uh, interviewing uh, someone who's written a craft book. And so that would be Brini because it's the character centered around that kind of situation and storyline. But within the art, it's a big question mark. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about the event? What kind of people go? Because um, I think, you know, right now we have drag queens reading to children in libraries. Right. So it's kind of like open, right? So what kind of people are, do you attract to the event? Well, it's in a bar, so uh, it's 21. No bar. children. No children, right? Um, but we have a broad range of different types of people that come. We have, you know, gay men. It's a gay bar, so we have gay men that join us. We have uh, women. It started out as a knitting event. So we would have knitters come and they would sit and they would knit. And then we would interview people in the knitting community or we would talk about fibercraft or stuff like that. So uh, as we you know, are coming out of lockdown, we're starting to transition that into a broader exploration of crafts in general. And so that is a, uh, you know, it opens the field for people. I'm gonna have someone who does ceramics come in. I'd like to have you come and talk about collage. Yes, please. Uh, right, I want to, I have a friend coming who's gonna talk about uh, mosaics. She uh, does mosaics as a profession. So she's going to come and we're going to do a, a summer camp crafts night where we'll be making um, God's eyes and friendship bracelets and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Kumbaya. So. Yeah. You know, I'm really curious because I think uh, during the pandemic, people have kind of reached uh, into other communities because it's so easy to jump on a Zoom and, you know, join the, the gay poetry reading or the you know, left-handed association for whatever. So I'm wondering if once the doors are open, if that integration will still be there. Uh, you'll have to let me know. Well, we'll find out. It's, we'll uh, yeah, we're finding our way with it. And we just had our first event, so who knows? But, and how did you feel going out into the wilderness? It was, it was a little strange, you know? It was the first, I, I shave off a mustache, so. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was a little, uh, a little odd, a little traumatizing, but uh, yeah. I would think so. Well, even before a uh, pandemic, I'm wondering, being a New Yorker, uh, I think of New York kind of as, as a fading thing, right? When I first got to New York, there was still like a gay environment, I want to say. You know, there was Big Cup, which was like a gay cafe and aside from the bars, uh, but it felt like a community space, right? Oh, this is where, you know, you meet people in an in outside of a bar environment. Uh, do you feel or where do you feel there is that kind of vibe where people can kind of meet other gay people kind of on a regular day-to-day -day in New York? I don't know. I mean, uh, I see what you mean. When I was first in New York, I was at the Chelsea gym, which was the gay all-male gym. You know, they don't have that anymore. Uh, Big Cup was right around the corner from me. You know, what's the nice thing about club coming is that it is not your typical bar in that way there's a uh, there's a real sense of uh community about the bar and um they do events like drink and draw 
where you can wow. come and do figure drawing uh, and things like that. So that is a nice place to go. And you know, Daniel Ardiccio is opening a new uh, space in the fall called Red Eye. Have you heard anything about no. that? Tell me more. Red Eye will be during the day, it's in uh, Hell's Kitchen. During the day, it will be a coffee bar, maybe like Big Cup, who knows? Fantastic. At night, it will be a bar where they have, where they have uh, dancing. And it also has a television studio set up in it. So they'll be able to broadcast performances and things like that, create um, video streams. So it's kind of an exciting project. And I see maybe that could become what you're talking about to some degree. Wow, that's really exciting. That's really interesting how that directly is kind of formed by this whole Zoom pandemic thing, right? Now it has a TV studio that just in case we're locked up again, uh, right. we, can, we can stream, we can work. Right. Uh, before I let you go, can you tell me a little bit about what's inspiring you right now? What are you watching? What are you eating? What are you reading? Well, I just finished watching the entire original series of One Day at a Time. Wow. <laughs> You familiar with that show? A little bit, but that sounds like like a like an endeavor. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, over time, I didn't do it all at once, and uh, I got through the entire series. And it's an interesting series. It's a it's a it was Norman Lear, you know, who's all in the family and Maud and the Jeffersons and those socially relevant yeah. comedies of the nineteen seventies. It's that, you know perspective on life. And this is about a, a mother who is has divorced and has taken her two daughters to raise uh, alone. And so there's a real interesting sort of 70s perspective on that. That was one of the first successful series to present a divorced character. And uh, so that has sort of informed some of what I do. I tend to watch series and then become a uh, inspired by the series in creating wardrobe or creating character or things like that um, to some degree. So that's sort of inspired me lately. I always tell artists, you know, artists are always working, even if they're watching TV, just oh, sitting in there thinking, true. I mean, we're always working and their ideas to be extracted yeah. from everything. Totally. Case point. totally, totally. Another thing that's been, uh, that's been sort of fascinating to me is advertising from the 70s. I've been really focused on, on creating some work around that. Cigarette ads. Uh, what are you taking away? Well, uh, I, I find the advertising sort of fascinating in how it manipulates you to feel a certain way. And so that has been uh, interesting to me. Um, and, and another thing that has really interested me is film production and how uh, I, te I also teach film history for an acting school. That's one of the things that I do. And so I've, during the course of teaching the class, I've learned a great deal as, as well. I mean, I came in knowing a lot, but it's been really interesting to expand my knowledge and, and drill down and really hone in on certain things. And so that has been inspiring me as well. How how the, the creation of, of scenes and then the assembly of them together uh, can create emotion in people. Hitchcock was famous for that, where he would, take, uh, he would take these pieces of film and he would assemble them together to create fright in an audience member. There's an incredible moment 
uh, in Rear Window. Do you know the film Rear Window? Oh yes, of course. Yeah, where he has built and built and built and built to this moment where we see uh, Jimmy Stewart's character and the rest of the characters in that world watching out the window and, and looking at Thorwald as he does all of these things in his life. And then there's the moment where Thorwald turns and looks directly into Jimmy Stewart's lens. And it is the scariest moment. I show that film to my students and I show that film and I also show Alien at another point in the semester. And the kids react to that moment more strongly than they do to the scenes in Alien because it's it's so, first of all, so well-crafted, not that Alien isn't, but it's so well-crafted and it's so relatable. It's people, it's not, you know, Xeno. <laughs> right, exactly. That's so, fascinating. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm sort of exploring ideas for creating art around that, assembling pieces of footage together to create different, emotions and different feelings. I can't wow. manipulate them as much as I can in still imagery. So I haven't been doing it as much uh, as I'd like to, but I'm, I'm sort of making plans to make that part of my art. That is so exciting. As you were saying that, I was playing Rearview Window in my head with you and Brini playing all the parts. Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Very exciting. Well, Ben, I have had such a great time and I am a huge, Fan. And again, I thank you for the work that you've done. It has been absolutely enlightening and reassuring, life-affirming. So I like you. So uh, thank you for hanging out. Yes, well, thank you, Luis. It's been so much fun to be uh, on your podcast with you. I really enjoy your work as well. So we'll have to set this up so you can come and join us at Club Coming. Oh, I would love to. Ciao. All right. Bye. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you've heard something that moved you, please share it. You are the candle that can ignite a thousand flames. I am Luis Martin, the art engineer, sharing with you what moves me.